I want to point out something to you, because I know you're judging me and David. We did not coordinate our shirts today. His actually uh, have anchors. They're, they're anchors, kind of. And mine are paisleys. And his has a button-down collar, and my collar is not buttoned down. So very different. Just want to make sure you're aware of that. The, oh, so now your shirt's better than my shirt? Is that what you're saying? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to search this week to find paisleys somewhere in the Bible. That's what I'm going to do. Thank you for freeing me up to do that important work. Well, this, uh, this Sunday, we're going to look at Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. We're continuing to go through the gospel of Luke. I think, though, next week, is next week the beginning of Job? Two weeks from now. Yeah, well, I don't know what you're preaching, man. I know what I'm preaching. So two weeks from now, we start the, the book of Job from the Old Testament, and we're going to do 10 weeks in that book. But uh, for the next two weeks, we're going to continue in Luke, and then we'll come back to Luke, and we'll finish it, hopefully, leading up to Easter. That's our plan. So this morning, I have a question to begin uh, the sermon. It's a question for you. I want you to meditate upon this question uh, during the course of the sermon, uh, even on after the service. And quite frankly, this is a question that you can come back to again and again through your Christian life. So please hear this question. What do you value most in the world? What do you value most in the world? You need to ask yourselves that. What's most important to you? At different stages of my life, uh, the answer to that question has been different things. I remember being a preschooler, and I had a blanket or a meme like many kids have, and I remember being too old, really, to carry it around town anymore and being well aware that I needed to give it up. And it was important to me. I, I clung to it. I remember doing some crazy things to try to find secret ways to hide it and take it around. I was sort of a, a Linus from Charlie Brown. Uh, when I got to, to high school, I had different things that I valued. I, I remember uh, sports were paramount for me. And so winning soccer matches or winning track meets, that was important for me. Being a star athlete was important. When I got to college, athletics were over and, and relationships. My friends became the most important thing. My social life became so incredibly important to me. And I valued it. And then I met my wife. And my friends paled in comparison to her. And I'll bet if you think about your life, the evolution that you've gone through in terms of value is similar to that. That, that you have valued different things at different times of your lives. But that's not the question, is it? The question is, what do you value most in the world right now? We could get distracted and look back and say, oh yeah, these are the things I valued in the past. But what Jesus is asking us, I think, in this passage is what do you value most now? Right now. And so we have to ask ourselves that question. And how we answer it, Jesus teaches, I think, in this passage, reveals much about our faith and much about our future. And so we want to learn about what Jesus is teaching here. We want to ask that question, and we want to come to terms with our Savior 
and our Lord. Let's look at this passage, Luke 18, beginning in verse 18 and then going to verse 30. I'm going to read it aloud, and then when I'm finished reading it, uh, you can follow along on the screen with me. When I'm finished reading it, we're going to pray uh, that indeed today God would be the one who's teaching us and instructing us and convicting us. So hear the word of God as it's recorded in Luke 18, beginning in verse 18. Luke writes, And a ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the man said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the man heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time. And in the age to come, eternal life. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for it. I'll invite you to pray with me now. Heavenly Father, we're going to dig into your word right now. Together, and we want to hear your voice. We're asking ourselves, what do we value most? And if we're honest, we have conflicted hearts. We're, we're torn between the things of this life, the things of this world, and you. But we want to hear Jesus' teaching here. We want to take it in. We want it to change our perspective. And so we ask that right now. Come, give us your grace. Give us your mercy. Transform our hearts. Transform our minds. Help us to live differently because of this message. Amen. Well, here's how we're going to go forward. To go forward, we're going to look at the characters here. Uh, we're just going to organize this message, this text, by the characters in it. And so first, we're going to look at the rich young ruler. And then second, we're going to look at the disciples. You might be able to lump the crowd in with the disciples. But I'm just going to say the disciples uh, for the sake of the sermon. And then third, we're going to look at Jesus, the teacher. Because only when we begin to see and know him... Can we accept his calling here on our lives? So that's the way we're going to move forward. Let's look first at the rich ruler. Verse 18 to verse 23 of this passage. Now the conversation Jesus has with 
the rich ruler here is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's, it's recorded three times in three of the four Gospels. So three of the four Gospels have this account. And so even if you're not very familiar with the Bible, maybe you don't read the Bible a lot, maybe you're new to the idea that you should read the Bible, you might be familiar with this story simply because of repetition. But, but even if you're not biblically literate and, and you don't know this story, surely you know the proverb that emerges from it, a proverb that's become very popular and well-known in our culture. Uh, the, the proverb that Jesus speaks here in relationship to this rich ruler, verse 25, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That saying has found its way into all sorts of things like book titles and song lyrics and jokes and board game questions, just to name a few. Surely you know that proverb, that saying. Now, well, this is all very interesting. The character to whom Jesus was referring when he coined this phrase is an overwhelmingly tragic figure. He seems to have everything anyone could ever want. He is young. He is extremely wealthy. He has the respect of his society. And yet, when we take a closer look at this man, what we see is that he's broken. He is insecure. He is a slave to the very things that we think should make him happy, his wealth, his possessions. He's a tragic figure. He's an unhappy man. His initial question reveals his insecurity. The young man approaches Jesus and he asks him, verse 18, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, what do I have to do to be saved? That's what he asks. Apparently, what his religious culture has taught him concerning salvation has not brought him peace has not made him to feel secure. Like he can, he can count on his relationship with God. He's still looking for something to do, something to accomplish and give him assurance that he's earned God's approval. This young man is a seeker. And we think to ourselves, when we, we, we watch this seeker go to Jesus with this question that we think he's going to the right place. This is exactly where he needs to go, right? He's going to Jesus. What must I do to be saved? We think, perfect, okay. And we're waiting for Jesus' answer and then we are confused. Aren't we? Confused by Jesus' answer to him. I mean, would you answer someone this way, the way that Jesus does here? If someone asked you how he or she could get to heaven, would you say, stop your sleeping around? Don't kill anybody. Stop your shoplifting. Don't tell lies about people anymore. Respect your mom and your dad, and you will inherit eternal life. I hope not. If so, we have failed as shepherds in this church. That's not the gospel. That's not the good news. And so we have to ask ourselves, why does Jesus answer this rich young ruler in that way? We have to say, what is Jesus doing here? We need to get to the bottom of that. Well, this man asks about what he can do. 
what he can do to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus, I think, answers him accordingly. In a sense, Jesus is saying, you want to know what to do? Go be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. Go put on God's character, his perfect and holy character. In a sense, he's saying, go figure out that you cannot do this on your own. The man wants to know what he can do, and Jesus says, you got to figure out that you can't do it. That's the first step. And Jesus wants to take him there. But the young ruler believes he can. Uh, This young guy thinks he's able. He, He thinks he's kept all the commands. He tells Jesus that he has obeyed these laws in verse 21 from his youth. From his youth. And that answer is revealing. That answer tells us so much about him. It exposes much about this seeker. It tells us he's pretty naive concerning the laws or the standards of God. Uh, He has not risen up to them. In fact, he has just kind of brought those standards down to his level. He has a bankrupt view of what it really means to be holy like God is holy. In short, you could say this rich young ruler thinks that he knows God, but he actually doesn't have a clue about who God is or what God is like. He just thinks he knows God. He thinks he knows God's standards, but he doesn't. Now, it would be easy to judge him at this point. Like, we could sit here in our comfortable building. Outside, there's rain, but we're dry, and we're cozy, and we're happy, and we could judge this rich young ruler and and think, you know what? What a shame. But we need to recognize how similar to him we naturally are. Our default mode, all of our default modes, are to not mount up to God's standard, but to rip God down, to bring him down to us, to to think of him too much like ourselves. Like we craft God into our image. That is our default mode. So we imagine things like that God is annoyed with the people that we're annoyed with, right? And he doesn't like the people that we don't like because God's so much like us that he must not like these people who we don't like. Uh, We might imagine God's politics are roughly aligned with our politics. God just follows right along with us. He would vote exactly like I'm voting. We think this, right? We craft God into our image. And when we sin, we tell ourselves... God gets it. He understands me. It's not that big a deal to him. But when other people sin, they just don't know how holy God is. Did you see how we tend to be just like this rich young ruler? We naturally think we're doing pretty well when it comes to God's commands. We naturally think God approves of us in so many ways that we've obeyed his laws, that we followed him well. That he gets us. But we don't actually understand his holiness either. If we think this way. Doing this reveals that we don't really have a clue. About who God is. And what God is like. Just like that rich young ruler. We're bankrupt. 
We're bankrupt. We are morally bankrupt. We're intellectually bankrupt. We're emotionally bankrupt. We are broken people. And that's lesson number one. We all have to get there. We all have to understand that fact before we can move forward. Before we can even contemplate entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Well, Jesus will not leave the rich young ruler there in that bankrupt position, that dangerously naive condition. So he begins to operate on him. Look at how he responds. Jesus says this in verse 22. He says, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. I'm going to be brief at this point and we're going to move on. Jesus is playing at the good doctor here. He's the good teacher. He's the good doctor. He is operating on this man's heart with surgical precision. He's helping him to see his spiritual cancer, his idolatry, isn't he? That is the point of that command, that one thing that he lacks. The the rich man thinks he serves God and obeys his commands, but Jesus is showing him, no, 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 you have an idol, your money, your possessions, You serve those things above God. And so if you think you've obeyed the commands of God, you are mistaken. And the man goes away sad, doesn't he? He goes away sad. But he goes away awake. He knows his condition now. And that is a good thing. Jesus has helped him to take that first step. He knows he has an idol. He knows He doesn't serve God as he should. And Jesus has given him a chance at eternal life. He's awake. He's sober. I wonder, though, as a pastor, and this is a pastoral question for all of us, are we awake? Are we sober? Or are we a lot like this rich young ruler when he comes to Jesus oftentimes? Natalie and I had a chance to go to Asheville, North Carolina this summer. And so uh, one of the things you do if you're in Asheville, North Carolina, typically, is you go to the Biltmore Estates, which is an incredible mansion on thousands of acres of beautiful, gorgeous land. Uh, It was uh, built by George Washington Vanderbilt and completed in 1895. Here's what it looks like. I got a picture of it. Can you put that up there? So if you guys have never seen the Biltmore Estates, this is just the house, but just imagine like a massive estate around there, all the way up to the mountains. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Truly a fabulous home, a fabulous place to live. But did you know, this is so important, did you know George Washington Vanderbilt only lived in the mansion for about 19 years? Only 19 years. He died uh, during an appendectomy. So 19 years, he was able to live in that house. The family only occupied it for about 35 years before opening it to the public to help pay for its upkeep. Now, just let that sink in for a second. 
the very mansion, the very home, all the acreage, all of these things that they had built to make them happy ended up being their master in the end. We can't afford it anymore. Now, why do I bring this up? Why why this illustration? Because, friends, this is the salvation which wealth really brings. Fickle. Fleeting. It will not last. It will not bring you peace. It cannot save you. This is the salvation. It's a picture of the salvation that wealth brings, which is no salvation at all. A new car, it won't save you. A bigger house will not bring you peace. These things were not intended to bring you happiness. Only Jesus can save. And that's precisely what he's confronting this rich young ruler with, and that's precisely what he wants to confront you and me with as well. If we don't get it, we're going to go away enslaved and sad, just like the rich young ruler. Well, we have to move on to our next characters in the scene, the 12 disciples, or 12 disciples in the crowd. Look again at the aftermath of Jesus' interaction with the rich ruler. Here's what Luke records for us, verse 24 to 28. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have well to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. When Jesus shares uh, the dangers that wealth and possessions can bring to us, uh, this crowd is shocked. Uh, Did you get that from the text? They're amazed. Then who can be saved? Verse 26. Have you ever wondered why they react that way? Who can be saved? It was because their culture was saturated in a kind of health and wealth mentality, a health and wealth theology. It went something like this, right? The rich people that we see, well, God must be smiling upon them. That's why they're rich. He must really like them. So this rich young ruler, oh, he must be God's favorite, one of his favorites. And when Jesus says, it's going, to be, it's going to take a miracle. It's going to be super hard for this rich young ruler to enter into the kingdom of heaven. They're like, well, if he doesn't get in, because God's obviously smiling upon him, obviously God likes him, then how, how are working stiffs like us going to get in? I mean, I mean we, God doesn't smile upon us like God smiles upon him. How are we going to get in? That's the shock. That's what he's moving them towards this question. Who can be saved then? It's all about health and wealth to them. They say, none of us can do that. None of us can work a miracle like that. None of us can save ourselves like that. If he doesn't get in, we don't get in. They're concerned. This is bad news to them. I wonder if you've ever felt like that. 
uh, like, like the crowd feels about the rich young ruler. Like you see somebody, they, they always seem to succeed. They always get the things that you wish you could get. And you're like, well, God must really love those people. God likes him or her better than God likes me. Have you ever fallen into that mentality? If so, let me just tell you what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that is not how God's love works. He's saying, don't think that way. Don't think like that about God. You're so wrong if you think that when God gives somebody something, that it must mean he especially loves them. And and when you don't get something, that he must be upset with you. Jesus says, no. Don't think that way. And so I just want to warn you, don't think that way. Don't think that way. We're going to get a strong dose of that in the book of Job in just a few weeks. Don't think that way. Well, when, when Peter hears this, and then Jesus says, you know, it's going to take a miracle because it's possible with God. You know, not possible for you, but possible with God. This is why I think Peter in desperation, I think he's desperate. I think he is concerned. He, he's, he yells this out. He just yells out, you know, but we've left it all for you. And Jesus says this, and here's where the good news breaks in. He's like, we left it all for you. Come on. Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Verse 29 and 30. Oh, these words are so important. Here's where the good news, the gospel breaks through. To understand and embrace these words as Jesus means them to be heard brings eternal life. To misunderstand them and to embrace that misunderstanding means to forfeit eternal life. These words of Jesus here are so important. The key to understanding, by the way, is the miracle. A camel and the eye of the needle The key to understanding is the miracle that Jesus says is necessary. What only God can do. That's the key. So there are two ways to interpret what Jesus says here. You could read it and think eternal life is made possible through the giving up. The forfeiture of house or wife, brothers, parents, children. I give stuff up. And then Jesus says, I will receive. You could interpret his, his words here like that, but there is no miracle in that. You can give stuff up. You can totally do that. I can do that. We can do that. There's no miracle in that. But on the other hand, you could read this and think eternal life comes by way of the kingdom of God through your faith at the highest level in God's kingdom come. God's kingdom revealed. God's king revealed. In short, you submit all you have to God's reign and make him king of everything you have. You stop trusting in your house, your wife, whatever it is. You don't trust in anything. You trust in God. You place your faith there. Remember the rich young ruler? He couldn't give up his faith in his possessions and he went away sad. You could interpret Jesus' words here and say, what are you going to trust at the highest level in? 
But you look at me right now, and if you've been a really good listener, you say, but where's the miracle in that? Jason, where's the miracle? The miracle stands before us in this passage. The good teacher. Jesus is the miracle. Jesus is what's impossible for us, but possible for God. He's the camel through the needle's eye. We're going to close here, but hear me on this. Jesus is the miracle. He's born God in the flesh. Virgin birth. Not possible for us, but possible for God. He lives a sinless and perfect life. He submits unwaveringly to his heavenly Father's will, even to death on a cross. Not possible for us, but possible for God. He dies in our place and remains three days in the grave, but takes up his life again, defeating death and sin on our behalf. Not possible for us, but possible for God. He is ascended and reigning at the right hand of the heavenly Father, He's the kingdom of God come. Christ Jesus is the miracle, our salvation made possible. Not because we did something, but because God did something in Christ Jesus for us. Jesus is the miracle. There's nothing we can do to earn eternal life. It's solely a free gift from God through faith in Jesus Faith that Jesus is king. Not our money, not our family, not anything else. Those aren't king. Jesus is king. He demands that we submit everything we have, including ourselves, to him as king. He says, I want it all. I want your wife or your husband. I want your children. I want your house. I want your car. It is all mine. But hear me on this because this is incredibly important. We do not have a king who doesn't understand sacrifice or giving up. We have a king who did that for us. Before we did anything, he gave up all. He sacrificed all to save us, to bring glory to his father. We do not have a king who is far off. We have a king who is near. We do not have a king who does not understand us. We have a king who understands perfectly what it means to sacrifice. And when we're willing to put everything under his reign, he gives us everything. He gives us himself. Amen. Amen. I pray that when you think about that question, what do I value most right now? That these ideas, these truths, this king would break into the conversation and invigorate your faith that you might submit all him. Let me pray that we'll move in that direction as a congregation, as a people, and serve God well with everything that we have. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, you are so good. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you that you are the miracle 
You are God doing what we could not do for ourselves. You are the camel through the eye of the needle. You have brought us salvation. And may we turn to you, confess our sins, and open up our lives so that your reign may invade every single area of our existence. And we pray these things for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.